Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And not too long ago, we talked about a few real Indiana Jones possibilities. And one of the guys who made our short list, we didn't go into too many details about him, but one of the guys who made our short list was the very famous T.E. Lawrence, better known, of course, as Lawrence of Arabia. And I think Lawrence of Arabia could still make a really great solo topic. But today we're going to discuss someone who's occasionally associated with him, Dame Freya Stark who's sometimes called the female Lawrence of Arabia. To me, though, Stark really reminds me less of Lawrence of Arabia and more of another podcast subject we've discussed, Ottoman traveler Evlia Chelebi. They explored mostly different areas of the world. They were obviously separated by several centuries, but they really stand out from other adventures we've talked about before because of their attention to detail. They were almost more writers before they were travelers. You know, that that was what they were really focusing on. They bothered to meet all different types of people and learn local customs, speak people's own languages. And they always preferred the slow road, too. I think if you remember when we talked about Evlia, he didn't like ships, kind of because he was scared of them, but it made his travel really slow. And the same is true for Freya, who could have taken a car a lot of places, but preferred to travel by donkey or by mule, you know, really take her time with it. There were some differences between them, though. Chelebi ultimately produced one epic travel account and one very impressive map. Stark, writing in the modern age, broke her accounts down into volumes. In her 100 years, she produced 24 travel books and autobiographies and eight volumes of letters. Many of them were bestsellers depicting arrests by the French, trips to the Fortress of the Assassins, the secret life of harems, and a month-long siege at the British Embassy in Baghdad. But her personal life and her penchant for wild hats is really just as interesting as this sort of professional life she had. It all starts in an appropriately bohemian fashion. She was born January 31st, 1893 in a Montmartre studio to artistic parents who were also first cousins. When she was only two years old, her parents started wandering, carrying her and her baby sister over the Alps in a basket. Yeah, very romantic sounding life. The most settled period of her childhood, though, was spent in her father's home at Devonshire, where she slept in a bed her mother had painted with ships. Again, all very romantic and appropriate for her later life. But the family basically lived all over Europe, and she grew up speaking English with an accent, which is kind of ironic, considering she was often thought to be the quintessential English woman. Um, German was really her first language. She also knew French and Italian as a child and learned a few other languages later on, as we'll see. It wasn't really quite as fun as it sounds, though, this life of childhood wandering, but it really did make Freya resourceful. She didn't have very much formal education, and she and her sister would instead study with occasional governesses, pick up a few things, and just read as much as they could. According to Jacqueline McLean in Women of Adventure, she later said, quote, Our wandering life made us precocious and pretty tough. But when Freya was 10 years old, her mother left her father for a 23-year-old broke Italian count and took the kids with her to northern Italy. Before her mother's money was cut off, the count bought a rug and basket factory, and the family managed to make a meager living off of that. Then, just before Freya's 13th birthday, while visiting the factory, she got her hair caught in some machinery. 
It pulled her up to the ceiling and mangled her scalp and her right ear before she could finally be freed. So horrible infections almost killed her, but doctors in Turin ultimately were able to save her life with skin grafts that came from her thighs. But the accident really made her quite self-conscious. She would dress her hair over the right side of her face, and later she would wear large hats. You know, we've mentioned that already. But uh, it also gave her some time to recover, too, and some time to start exploring new things while she was recovering. She started to read adventure stories and get really fixated on the idea of travel, something uh, I guess she had grown up doing but wasn't really doing by this point, just sort of stuck in northern Italy where she was pretty unhappy. Eventually, though, her father, who was now living far off in Canada, agreed to send her to college in London where she studied English literature and history. She wasn't there for long, though, before World War I began, and she had to return home to Italy, and there she became a nurse. During the time that she was gone, though, her younger sister Vera, who was just 18 at the time, married her mother's Italian count boyfriend. Kind of a strange situation there. <laughs> it is indeed. And according to Claudia Roth Pierpoint in The New Yorker, there's some disagreement between Stark's biographers about how this actually played out. Some of them suggests that the Count first courted Freya, or that he simply chose Vera instead, and that whatever the case, they had a very happy life together with four children, and this left Freya feeling either that she had made the wrong choice or that she had been passed over. Others suggest, though, that Vera had a horrible life with the Count, and that Freya was instead troubled by her sister's unhappy situation. Still, I mean, I'll say it again, just kind of a strange situation here. More than kind of. It's (laughs) definitely odd to have your father, stepfather, become your husband yeah, and brother-in-law. Yeah, you had known since you were 10. But uh, Freya had her own broken engagement, too, while she was acting as a nurse in Italy. Her fiancé had left her when she got typhoid. But after the war was over, Freya and her mother lived in a house on the Italian Riviera, and they were just barely scraping by. They were very poor. Freya grew flowers so that she could sell them and supplement their income. Again, she was isolated. She was bored. And to get away from this really claustrophobic life, she got into mountain climbing and started scaling the Alps, and she started studying again, something I guess she had sort of put aside for a while while she was nursing. A teacher of hers suggested, well, why don't you learn a new language? You know, she already spoke English, German, French, Italian. Why don't you learn a language that's a little bit outside of the ordinary? And he suggested maybe Icelandic would be a cool one to learn. But Freya had a smart hunch that there was potentially more promise in learning Arabic. So after World War I, the Ottoman Empire had been broken up and the British and the French controlled much of the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan. And Freya knew that large parts of the Arab-speaking world were starting to open up to travelers, archaeologists, cartographers, and people doing government work. And so she hoped that knowing Arabic would get her interesting work and, quote, lead me out into some sort of fairy land of my own. Plus, she had romanticized notions of Arabian nights from her readings as a girl. Yeah, she was hoping it would be some grand adventure and a way for her to 
go somewhere new, someplace far away from where she was. So she took her study very seriously. She saved, you know, we mentioned she was barely scraping by here, but she saved her lessons at the London School of Oriental Studies and added Persian to her repertoire, too, um, as well as improving her Arabic. But it wasn't until 1926, after her sister Vera died from a miscarriage, that Freya decided that it was time to put her skills into practice, time to go for it and travel like she'd always wanted to. So she started off by taking a cargo ship to Beirut, and she recognized that that was a good starting place for her because it had a strong French influence. It wouldn't be completely foreign. She could work her way in. She could keep studying Arabic. And she was really welcome when she came to town because um, she said that people thought she was there, quote, neither to improve nor to rob, just to learn stuff, just to observe and really practice her language. By March of 1928, now confident in her language skills, Freya traveled to Damascus. According to McLean, this was kind of the first bubble popping of that romantic Arabia idea that she had. She found this city war-torn, cold, full of fleas, and herself sick with dysentery. But she also proved her early traveler's medal by not letting any of that stop her from exploring ruins and wandering the city. Yeah, she really got out there and did what she had hoped to do. But of course, she didn't get her eventual reputation as a bold explorer for just powering through dysentery, you know, getting out there. And Although that's admirable. A, it is admirable. But, um, you know, she had to do more than just wander around an already well-known city. She got that reputation because she went to places where she wasn't supposed to go in the first place. And her first major expedition like this was south of Damascus to the Druze tribe in a region that had rebelled, recently rebelled against French control and had been suppressed by the French. And then the French had actually placed the entire area under martial law and barred travelers from entering. So she was definitely not supposed to be visiting there. But Freya and a British friend slipped the border and dodged the French authorities as long as they could. When they were finally caught, Freya and her friend played dumb traveler lady. They were just kind of like, oh, my goodness, our Thomas Cook guidebook must have misdirected oh, us. We're, How did we get here? We're in a place we shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Didn't quite work, though. The French authorities thought that they might be spies, and so they were sent to the army barracks. But Freya managed to charm her way out of there. She... Uh, took part in army dinners, horse rides. She even got permission to keep traveling. And most importantly, she had Drew's street cred now since she had been arrested by their enemies, the French. Yeah, she was cool with the Drews now. So her next trip, which took place in 1929, started in Baghdad, which at the time was British controlled, but very diverse. It was filled with Arabs and Greeks, Turks, Jews, Armenians, Kurds, Persians. And she uh, really took advantage of that diversity too. She upped her study of Persian. She began learning folklore. She was very interested in history and literature and that type of thing. And this improved Persian of hers prepared her for the main goal of this trip, which was to visit the El Borz Mountains in modern Iran, uh, which held the ruined fortress of the assassins. And um, I think I've heard the assassins in conjunction with it's how we have our word assassin or assassinate. Um, but I didn't know too much about them. And I think they could make a pretty cool podcast subject on their own. But they were a murderous medieval sect that would do just what you'd expect them to do, infiltrate groups and then assassinate somebody. So traveling in what became her signature style, no servants, 
few guides, lots of medicine, lots of little presents, and embossed letters of introduction, Stark set out with mules. The fortress had already been explored, but Stark updated maps, she relocated a misplaced mountain, and she documented all the people that she met along the way. She also popularized the place, writing The Valleys of the Assassins and other Persian travels, which became a hit not just for the main attraction, which of course was the assassins, but for the other personal details that contained, like an account of a poor woman offering Freya the only tomatoes from her garden, but secretly slipping her son the leftover juice that came out of slicing them. And I think this is a good point to mention, too, that Stark is really well known for her depiction of women's lives. And according to Roth Pierpont, that New York article we mentioned earlier, um, she'd often be the first European woman in an area. So the first people who would be really interested in her were, of course, the the local women. You know, they were interested in seeing their first European lady. And so she would make friends with them, start talking with them first and learn about bridal customs and clothes and jewelry and harems and kids and just day-to-day life and through them ultimately gain access to the men's world, but pick up a lot about uh, kind of an unexplored aspect of life in the meantime. So after a third two-year trip, Stark began to be seen as a Middle East expert back home. The Royal Geographic Society honored her and began to help fund future trips of hers. So in 1934, she decided her next trip would be less about mapping and more about discovery. She really wanted to find an ancient trading spot believed to be the origin of the frankincense trade route and possibly the capital of the Queen of Sheba. Pretty much any foreign explorer, we should say here, um, pretty much any explorer in the Middle East at the time wanted to find Shabwa, which was believed to be buried. But the area was a harsh desert and contested ground between two warring tribes, so it's pretty dangerous to attempt this. And to make matters worse and even more difficult, Stark would have to cross into independently controlled northern Yemen, where foreigners were not welcome, and so she'd have to do it in secret. So she went traveling with Bedouin guides and um, got, you know, a decent ways before she caught measles from a child in a harem on a stop along the way. She got pretty near to Shabwa, but she got sick again, this time with malaria. And then she made a bad mistake about mixing medication. She combined her malaria medicine with her dysentery medicine, which caused major heart problems. And uh, she ultimately had to be evacuated by the Royal Air Force. Uh, But while she was in the hospital, this must have just been so disappointing. While she was in the hospital, a German photographer found the fortress ruins. She did later um, get credit from uh, the guy who explored them more fully, but she didn't get to see them or discover them herself, rather. When World War II began, Freya chose her English alliances over her Italian, though her home was in Italy and her nieces and nephews were all Italian. She joined the Ministry of Information and was posted to Aden as the South Arabia expert. Her job was basically to keep Yemen and later Cairo and Baghdad pro-British or at least neutral. So she essentially became a PR woman, a propaganda woman. She'd battle Nazi or fascist propaganda with pro-British propaganda, trying to convince people that the British could win the war, which was something that was a little bit on the fence in the early years. She'd also help disseminate news. She'd translate Reuters reports for a broadcast. And she'd even personally arrange 
propaganda exhibitions herself. In northern Yemen, for instance, she snuck in a projector claiming that it was some sort of portable commode and made friends with the minister there or made friends with the minister's wife there. She would have tea with her, chat with her in Arabic, just sort of get comfortable with everybody. Movies and recordings were forbidden there for religious reasons, but Stark found a way around that by describing the movies to the ladies of the harem. And she must have done it enticingly enough that the ladies were eventually allowed to watch. They eventually pressured somebody to allow them to watch the movies. And soon enough, the men were also watching these pro-British propaganda films. And uh, many credit Stark for at least partially being responsible for keeping Yemen neutral during World War II. In Cairo, she recruited members for an anti-fascist pro-democracy group called Brotherhood of Freedom. She had just gotten to Baghdad to start a new chapter there when a pro-Nazi coup took place in April 1941. Most British allied foreigners tried to hunker down at this point, but Stark just took a jaunt to Tehran and then remarkably came back back to Baghdad because she was worried about all her embassy friends. She was arrested by frontier police, but managed to talk her way out of it, claiming that she couldn't possibly stay without a lady's maid. And she kind of flattered the guard a little bit. Um, And this was just the lady's maid part of it was really it was opposite to her actual way of living. That's what's so so funny about it. She's so good at talking her way out of these situations, even if it involves saying something completely counter to what she really believes. So the guard did send her on her way to Baghdad, where she slipped into the British embassy just as they were sandbagging the doors for a month long siege. So Freya spent the next month with 350 other people inside that embassy. Since the Royal Air Force Base had been closed by the Iraqi army, the British were attempting to uh, shell the base, try to reclaim it so they could get their folks out. But despite sniper fire and summer heat and obviously close quarters in the embassy, I mean, people were sleeping on the lawns. Stark, who was, after all, by this point, kind of a British celebrity, really tried to keep morale up and keep folks entertained. There were already piano concerts and things that would be staged, but she gave a lecture about her travels. She made sure that the ladies were going to have soap and face powder, even though, um, and that request was granted, even though one Iraqi policeman supposedly said he couldn't imagine why the harem inside would bother thinking about something like face powder because they were all about to be murdered. Um, When the siege finally did end, according to Roth Pierpont, Hitler was only able to commit two squadrons of planes because he had been in the process of sending these huge numbers of troops to the Soviet Union. So when the siege finally did end, Stark promptly headed out, bought three new hats. And um, just kind of a side note there, too, she was really into not only hats, but clothes. She apparently wrote, there are few sorrows through which a new dress or hat will not send a little gleam of hope, however fugitive. I think that's kind of a surprising, reminded me of Louise Boyd almost with her flowers she would wear in the Arctic on her Arctic expedition. Oh, yeah. Um, that this lady who obviously could rough it for a while was still pretty interested in hats with clock patterns on them and interesting clothes and that type of thing. 
Well, in 1943, she took those hats with her on the road when she was sent on a tour of the U.S. to try to influence American politicians to oppose the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. While she was welcomed as a famous writer, her speeches did not go over well at all, nor did her assertion that immigration required Arab consent. She was really dismayed that many people considered her an anti-Zionist and was horrified to be considered anti-Semitic. While she wrote a book during this period, it was her last on Arabia. Politics just turned out to be not really her thing. She preferred history instead. And she preferred just traveling, too. After the war, she moved back to Italy. She found that fascist officers had been living in her house. And she got married. This is a very odd interlude in her life. She married a historian and diplomat who she had met through her wartime work and who she'd known for a few years. Uh, Unfortunately, he was known to be gay by pretty much everybody except for her. And the marriage was not what she was anticipating. She had not been expecting a marriage between friends, and the two separated pretty soon after, though she did continue calling herself Mrs. Freya Stark, which I think is an unusual little nod to her married state. She didn't get divorced either. She must have really liked to have that Mrs. title. But have her own name attached to it. Yeah. She was made a dame of the British Empire at age 77, wrote until her death in 1993 at age 100, traveled until she was 93, visited much of Iran, retracing the route of Alexander the Great's army, going to remote spots in Afghanistan in her 70s. And uh, in her 80s and 90s, she stuck mostly to Europe, escorting her many godchildren on travels as well. So she sort of passed on the travel bug in a way, I it guess. It sounds like she did. Some of her godchildren have even written about her accounts. And of course, later in life, too, she was doing a lot of photography and was considered pretty great at documenting places in an interesting, interestingly architectural way. For such a lifelong traveler, though, it's maybe not too surprising that she even saw her own death as as a type of journey. She told a friend, quote, waiting for death, my dear, is very much like being in an old fashioned steam train setting out on a journey. Her story and her fame are more remarkable, too, when you consider that she wasn't a great explorer, as in she didn't make many important discoveries, per se. Her bigger contribution was really her ability to observe and to document change, you know, paved roads, new states, things like that, as well as traditions uh, of all classes, men and, men and women. And her books are filled with incredibly descriptive passages, and she could convince people to open up to her, and that was a real talent partly because she spoke their language. And many of the people she met on her travels became lifelong friends of hers, too. But I think what might be the most notable thing about Freya Stark's life was her almost complete disregard for danger. She just really didn't care. She could almost always get out of things. I think a great illustration of this was when she was exploring ancient graves in what is today Iran. And she crossed yet another border illegally, seems to be a common theme here, and was stopped by the police. When she was delivered by the police to the governor, he was more amazed than angry because she was alive and she had been in this area that was riddled with bandits. And in fact, she later learned that murderers had been stalking her right before she was captured by the police. And I think that's a such a strange example because we've seen all these ones where she talks her way out. But how many near misses were there, too? That's true. 
It's interesting too that she seems to have really like embraced this aspect of her personality, this thirst for danger, about. and it's really um, indicative, I think, in this quote of hers where she said, "I I wanted space, distance, history, and danger." So there you go. I know. I'm really envious of that quality in people. Danger seeking. (laughs) Well, yeah, not recklessness. I mean, sometimes, of course, it's just crazy. But sometimes I wish I had more of that just, you know, disregard for danger. Just go for it. Well, Dublina, I think you will maybe want to listen to our listener mail then, because we not only have some emails from folks who recommended some great travel accounts, we have some travelers as well. Oh, well, I can't wait to hear that. So looping this thing back around to Evlia Chalabi, who we mentioned at the beginning here. During that episode, we had put out a call for favorite travel narratives, and we heard from a lot of people. Um, I'm just going to name a few recommendations people had, but like I said, also some folks who are doing their own travels. I thought it was really interesting to hear from those people. Uh, one recommendation, which came from Kathleen, was for Lefkadi O'Hearn, who she said was an excellent observer of life in Japan in the late 1800s, who had a profound effect on the area. She also said, though, he was apparently given a shout-out in a Bond film, so an effect on culture as well. But that was pretty neat. We heard from Naya, too, who suggested Alif Bataman's book, hope I'm pronouncing that right, The Possessed Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. She said the book couldn't technically classify as travel writing. It's more of a travel through literature almost. But she said that it had that strong sense of adventure, which was something that I know we discussed a lot during the, the, uh, during our discussion of travel writing. We got another email from listener Jordan in Chicago, and he said that after he finished listening to the podcast on Evelia Chelebi, our comments near the end about how we prefer travel narratives to guidebooks, quote, really struck home with me. He said, I have a travel web the uneducated traveler, and I've always advocated traveling without a guidebook, without a structured plan. Since I travel without a guidebook, my trips never read like one either. I make some mistakes myself, but I want to encourage people to start exploring countries and their people instead of reading about them. The world should be ours to share, and that means traveling without fear or hesitation, even if it's a little uncomfortable at times. That's very uh, Stark-esque, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and then finally, just one more here. I loved this email from Scott and Edie. They said uh, they're big fans of the podcast. And in November 2011, this is what they said, we left our jobs in our apartment, sold our furniture, stored a few remaining things, and packed a truck to hit the road for a year or more of traveling. You all, along with others like This American Life, Snap Judgment, Risk, Coverville form the staple list of podcasts we listen to while driving. In the past five months, we've covered over 12,000 miles and have seen some amazing countryside from Key West to Gila National Forest. That's a lot of time to listen to the podcast. We listened to the episodes about Evelia Chelebi while driving into Gila National Forest, one of the most scenic and beautiful places we've seen. That episode was really interesting to us. While we have much more infrastructure, you know, GPS, Internet, iPhones, etc., to support us than he did, it was like hearing about a kindred spirit who set off to discover the world in his own way. So another... um, Another really interesting connection to somebody who has been dead for 500 years that travelers today can still feel a connection to to um, a fellow writer and a fellow traveler. Yeah, and I like that people are that travel has changed so much and that people are approaching it in so many different kinds of ways. 
I like the um, don't use a guidebook tip. Although I will say I've found some things in guidebooks sometimes. You know, Me too. Sometimes it's like the seventh thing on the top ten list or whatever, and you think <laughs> it's going to be a total bust anyway, but you just go because it's closest or something sometimes like that. Sometimes you just need the map, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes you just need the map. That's true, too. But sometimes you discover some weird and, and neat things. But it is nice to kind of go off the guidebook path once in a while. So thank you all listeners who wrote in to share favorite travel narratives or just tell us about your own travels. I think both Evlia and Freya would be be proud. And if this has inspired you to go on your own adventure, we have a cool article on our website called 10 Extreme Vacations. So maybe you can get some ideas there. You can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.